In our last two lectures, we've been looking at government-private enterprise relationships, as well as government-NGO relationships. In this lecture, we turn our attention to popular legitimacy and accountability. In China, citizens express their discontent to the government officials through a variety of means, both legal and illegal. On the one hand, they have attempted to present their case to public officials through existing channels, such as local leaders, people's congresses, the media, and official trade unions. When formal legal channels fail, Chinese citizens can turn to other methods of protests. What we do see is that there's been a plethora of protest demonstrations and violence, um, which has become quite commonplace throughout China. Protesters might demand compensation for stock swindles, reduce fees and taxes, elimination of corruption, increase compensation for giving up their houses. Uh, the list is, is quite limitless. The party has reacted to these incidents with a renewed call for stability. Stability had once again become the single most important goal of the Communist Party of China's leadership. Now, what's really interesting is, why do Chinese leaders occupy themselves with this idea of stability? The simple answer is that they cannot afford not to ignore citizens' complaints. In communist societies, citizens and the government are bound through a tacit social contract. Under the terms of this social contract, the government has to meet concrete policy commitments and to provide material goods and services whereas in response, citizens respond with loyalty. Put differently, the study of citizens' complaints allows us to understand and explore the question of popular accountability. What accountability means in this context is that when individuals make demands on the government, the government has to respond to them. Of course, not all demands would be received favorably. To be considered legitimate, demands have to fall within the scope of the social contract. Now, when we examine letters of complaints, this is a great way for us to understand citizens' perceptions about the deficiencies in the fulfillment of the social contract. Citizens effectively register their discontent and demand swift government action to address the problems. Failure to act by the government would send signals to the individuals in China that the government had broken its commitments under the social contract. In turn, this may potentially give citizens license to organize and, and at, at, at the most extreme example, rebel against the government. The fact here is as long as it will be construed as part of the social contract, the government should entertain the sort of complaints that citizens have. Now, it's interesting because accountability in the communist context um, was strictly limited to the terms of the social contract. In China, expenditures for social services rarely surpassed 20% of budgetary outlays during the reform era. The leadership promised state-sponsored capitalism, which meant a gradual retrenchment of the already limited welfare provisions. This narrower social contract gave the regime more flexibility to pursue difficult economic reforms without concerns for these social groups that may lose out uh, from the market reforms. As a result, China's had much more limited volume of citizen complaints than, say, other communist nations, which reflect the more limited nature of the social contract. However, by the early 2000s, this has changed. 
frustrations increasingly mounted and were more and more frequently expressed through mass protests and citizenry complaints. This forced the Chinese regime to renegotiate the reform-era social contract and to promise more generous welfare provisions for disadvantaged groups. The ability of the regime to quell popular discontent by delivering on these promises is a key factor in determining the regime's survivability. A reading of the extensive communist studies literature and the new research on hegemonic party stability allows us to deduce four main hypotheses about the resilience of communist single-party regimes such as China. The first is that regime resiliency is a result of repression. The instrumental use of repression to ensure communist regime survival has been emphasized both by scholars working in the classical totalitarian paradigm and the new models of, of communism uh, in the Chinese context. However, their claims have not been subject to empirical testing. In the 1980s, rates of repression declined sharply even in China, where there was fewer political prisoners after Tiananmen than in 1978 at the end of the Cultural Revolution. These declines in the number of political prisoners, combined with modest but steady improvements in rights and freedoms, make it difficult to argue that the communist regime resiliency is a result of habitual massive repression. Thus, we need to look to our second sort of hypothesis about the resiliency of communist single-party regimes such as China. That is, the regime survives because they manage elites well. Typically, analysts focus on a small group of individuals. A situation of reciprocal accountability exists between members of the selectorate and the leader. The selectorate chooses the leaders but the leader can also reward or punish members of the selectorate. Although the size of the selectorate is often left vague, we know that this group is small, consisting members of the Politburo, or at the most, the Central Committee and the Legislature. The population at large does not matter necessarily in this scenario. The assumption is that they are repressed. Payments flow only to members of the selectorate who are rewarded for their loyalty. While the selectorate certainly matters in communist societies, a theory that excludes the masses does not do justice to the complex empirical realities of politics in mature communist regimes. After, after 1989, for example, at the latest, Chinese leaders also learned that people matter. Whereas in the early stages of their life cycle, communist regimes can survive by repressing the masses and rewarding the selectorate this is not an option for mature communist regimes such as China, which has, again, chosen to pay close attention to popular attitudes. A related third explanation is that resilience is a result of the emergence of institutions for rival incorporation, like parties and legislatures. This third hypothesis also focuses on elites, but advances a broader definition of membership in the elite. These studies rightly point out that non-democratic regimes have to develop mechanisms for incorporating potential political rivals. One way to do that is to provide members of the elite with access to rents, either by giving them seats in the legislature or membership in the ruling party. The incorporation of elites occurs at two levels. Leading cadres have the potential promise of attaining high office. Lower level cadres and ordinary party members 
can still derive some benefits from membership in the ruling party. The fourth sort of hypothesis about the resilience of communist single party regimes such as China is that the regime survives because of voter manipulation. Now, citizens in communist societies do not matter in the way that they do in hegemonic party systems where the regime has to devise ways to prevent them from voting for the opposition. In hegemonic party systems, both positive inducements, for example, increased spending around elections and various types of patronage, and negative inducements like intimidation or oppression are used. There's also occasional vote buying. As interesting as this theory is, it is not necessarily applicable to communist societies such as China. In China today, competitive elections that would fit uh, models uh, that we might see in other jurisdictions do not necessarily occur. And if they do occur, they occur at the level of the village. So the, at the village level elections, we do see uh, competitive elections. In China, the introduction of nationally competitive elections has yet to occur. And thus, the fourth thesis may not necessarily apply uh, in examining the resiliency of the Communist Party. Nevertheless, mass publics still do not matter in communist societies in the ways that theories of hegemonic party rule suggest they do in other nations. These theories are therefore unsatisfactory as an explanation for the longevity of the Communist Party of China. Research on mature communist regimes such as China raises a major puzzle. If the regime does not hold itself in place through repression or voter manipulation, then what are the sources of their stability? Undoubtedly, successful elite management is important. However, it is not sufficient. The regime also needs to have a certain degree of popular legitimacy in order to maintain stability. Legitimacy has been defined in many different ways, but the simplest and most elegant definition states that it exists when regimes manage to generate belief in the obedience worthiness of their rule, which will, in normal circumstances, secure the acceptance of their decisions without resort to overt coercion. In short, the legitimacy of mature communist regimes is performance-based. It depends on their ability to fulfill the terms of the social contract. Now, of course, economic crises present a challenge to performance-based legitimacy, since it makes it more difficult to deliver on the social spending aspects of the social contract. In turn, this performance crisis may put in place the preconditions for regime collapse, as it nearly occurred in China in 1989. This suggests that communist regimes are accountable to the people for fulfilling the social contract, and that failure to fulfill the contract may become one of the factors that lead to regime collapse. In other words, the masses do matter. For the social contract to be meaningful, individuals have to be able to hold the government accountable for fulfilling its promises. The government can be accountable in three different ways. The first operates at the micro level of the individual. Each citizen can make requests to the government to deliver on the terms of the social contract. The specific request may concern material benefits, for example, housing, consumer goods, jobs, or it may relate to rights and freedoms, for example, appeals following unfair trials, uh, complaints of unfair treatment by government employees. Routine accountability typically takes this form. Another form of accountability operates at a higher level when entire social groups benefit from improvements in official policies. 
for example, when pensions are raised. By enacting such policies, the government signals to the population that it is accountable to it for fulfilling some of the more general promises of the social contract about improvements in the standard of living. Finally, at the highest level, the entire regime might collapse as a result of a failure of accountability. The inability to deliver on the terms of the social contract was one of the reasons for regime collapse in the Soviet Union. However, this has not been the case in China. In authoritarian regimes, citizens may use various institutions of vertical accountability to hold the government responsible for fulfilling the social contract. In China, institutions of vertical accountability include administrative reconsideration, administrative litigation, and lodging complaints with party and state agencies. Although most research has focused on elections as a formal institution of accountability, notably village elections, they are probably the weakest available lever of accountability in China. Primarily, the reason for this is because it generally only occurs at the village level and in some urban neighborhoods. Village leaders often lack the resources or the power necessary for responding to popular requests about fulfilling the terms of the social contract. Administrative reconsideration and administrative litigation has received scant attention from scholars, but they hold great promise of holding the government accountable for failure to deliver on the social contract. They allow citizens to challenge negligent or corrupt bureaucrats for their action or inaction. However, it's the last avenue for popular accountability, the citizens' complaint system, which consists of letters and visits, um, which is really the least understood by scholars, and yet it's the one that's most frequently used. In China, a very different type of social contract between the regime and the masses has been struck. In 1978, Deng Xiaoping declared that the three decades of Mao's repression and mass mobilization had ended, and ushered in the era of reform. The new slogan was to get rich is glorious. The reform era social contract features socialism with Chinese characteristics. This essentially meant that the state will allow both the elites and the masses to pursue wealth maximizing strategies while gradually reducing its responsibilities for social service provision, known as the Iron Rice Bowl. The new social contract was largely acceptable for the masses until the early 2000s. The spirit saw an 11-fold increase in real per capita GDP, accompanied by a substantial reduction in social spending. What is quite remarkable is that even urbanites abided by the terms of the new social contract. This required them to lower their expectations of social service provision by the state and to focus trying to get rich. The state provided the laws necessary to support capitalistic activity, but not the safety net to help out the, shall we say, the losers from the rushes to riches. The new social contract did not allow for radical advances in political rights and freedoms, such as the right to form political parties. Nevertheless, there were marginal improvements in rights and freedoms, similar to, and in some cases even greater than, those provided under goulash communism in Eastern Europe. In some, at the beginning of the reform era in China, the state already had a smaller role than its other communist counterparts. This role contracted even further as the reform era progressed. Chinese citizens consequently expected a lot less from the state and complained less often, mostly about legal matters that, rather than welfare issues. 
It's worthwhile mentioning that in China, the regime can use four channels to monitor public opinion. Rumors and anti-regime jokes, opinion polls, blogs and internet chat rooms, and citizen complaints. Due to data limitations, scholars have not systematically explored all of these channels in a great depth. For example, quantitative research on rumors and anti-regime jokes is very difficult to be performed. Even, this is even more the case when looking at opinion polls, especially on politically sensitive matters. When we do look, however, at citizen complaints, we are able to systematically understand it to a great extent. Complaints can be lodged either by writing a letter or by making a visit to the government's office in person. Along with local elections and administrative reconsideration and litigation, citizen complaints serve as an important mechanism for vertical accountability. They are especially important in urban areas. Some scholars have conducted polls that indicate citizen dissatisfaction with government performance in specific areas, for example, inflation control, housing provision, job security, health care, welfare provision, and environmental protection. The data reveals that in absolute terms, the provinces with the lowest number of complaints were Tibet, Ningxia, Qinghai, and Inner Mongolia, all of which had fewer than 10,000 complaints. The highest numbers of complaints were the more relatively wealthier provinces, interestingly enough. In fact, when we control for population, if you look at a Tianjin or Shanghai or Beijing or Jiangsu or Guangdong, they are the ones that actually have um, one of the highest number of complaints. As individuals get richer, they're more willing to make demands on the state. Similarly, high population density is a proxy for the number of proximity of individuals to government officials. We would not expect that individuals living in underpopulated areas where the nearest government official might behave in a day's trip away away uh, will complain as much as individuals living in an urban metropolis such as Tianjin or Shanghai or Beijing, where the nearest government office is, is a mere stroll away. Citizen complaints are unequally distributed across Chinese provinces both in absolute terms and in the number of complaints per million people. The question then is who complains and why? The results indicate quite clearly that well-off urbanites and those who are educated are more likely to complain, but we do not have as, as much meaningful data about the membership in the Communist Party or professional groups. We can provide a better answer to the question why people complain by understanding the classification for complaints. The Chinese regime classifies its complaints into five categories, a suggestion, a signal or denunciation, appeal of judicial decisions, seeking resolution, or the other category. Letters most frequently concern labor and social insurance, housing destruction and the displacement of owners, land expropriation, enterprise system restructuring, legal matters and appeals, employees of retail stores and markets, demobilized soldiers, substitute teachers, environmental protection, and cadre work style. Now, what is the outcome of these complaints? Most complaints are either left without consequence or transferred to another agency for resolution. It is only extremely rare that agencies that receive a complaint would actually accept it for investigation. However, we can think of regime response in other ways that direct response to individual complaints. Sometimes new laws are introduced or policies are introduced that changes the way that are consistent with the tenor of citizen complaint.
A good example of this might be, might be looking at the gradual elimination of rural taxes and levies. By and large, individual complaints made by Chinese citizens have a small chance of success. This explains why Chinese citizens often attempt to skip levels in their petitioning behavior and why petitions escalate into mass protests or in the Chinese context, this might be classified as mass incidents by the authorities. However, what we do see is that China's managed to ensure that mass incidents are aimed against the local government rather than at the center. And furthermore, that mass incidents do not cross county or provincial lines. This can help ensure that protests, even when they do potentially turn violent, do not, do not really endanger uh, regime stability. The previous Hu Wen administration showed a commitment to improving the lot of those who did not benefit from the first two decades of market reforms. The changes are so great that it is possible to talk of a new social contract that was emerging uh, prior to Xi Jinping, where the redistributive commitments of the central state are much greater than what they were during the 1980s and 1990s. It was questionable, of course, whether the leadership was able to fulfill the terms of this new social contract. Comparisons with Eastern Europe reveal that on, on an individual basis, a small proportion of letters and visits are examined and resolved in favor of the complaints in China. In addition, a small proportion of complaints are allowed to reach the central authorities in China than in Eastern Europe. This reflects the basic structure of the political system in reform era China where the centers devolved a wide array of powers to subnational governments. This structure allows the center to deflect responsibility for resolving complaints to the subnational government. In practice, this leads frustrated complainants to escalate their demands into mass protests. The combination of an expanded social contract and expanded range of potential claims of the government, low resolution rates for routine complaints, and high incidence of escalation of complaints into mass protests suggests that a crisis of accountability was occurring in China during the Huwen administration. Especially if economic performance worsens and fewer funds are available to meet the redistributive demands of the people. In the present era during Xi Jinping, the question is, what does the new social contract look like? In the next few lectures, we'll be examining this question in greater depth to understand how has Xi Jinping developed a, a reformulized social contract with the Chinese citizenry. This concludes our lecture on popular legitimacy and accountability. In our next lecture, we will explore the topic of ideological development and performance in the context of contemporary China.